0: Our scripture um, today comes from Roman, the book of Romans, chapter four, uh, verses one to seventeen, and it can be found on page seventeen fifty one on a few Bibles. And you might want to keep it open uh, during this sermon because it'll be kind of hard to follow. <laughs> what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather? Discover what well, we should we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits his righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does ne- will never count against him. Now, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's ba- faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to him. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also have walked in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression." Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were. Uh, So we're reading a passage in the New Testament, and let's see if you can guess what my first four words about it will be. Ready? In the Old Testament, God, God had a special relationship with the Jewish people. But there's tons of passages about how God will expand that special relationship to include people from all over the world. The world was broken and falling apart, and the Jews were going to be the first landing point for the mission to bring God's blessing to everyone. Eventually, praise God, his kingdom was going to come to everyone and pick up the pieces of this broken world. The Jews had this confession in a lot of the Psalms that the Lord reigns. And not just over Israel, but over the whole world. And that's a big deal at times where it really doesn't look like the Lord reigns. When other nations are invading and taking over and making everyone suffer. But they still confessed, the Lord reigns. But one day they hoped God's kingdom would spread over the whole earth and all the things that look like they oppose goodness and truth and beauty will go away. Then, even people from all over the earth will be citizens of God's kingdom, Jews and Gentiles alike. The confession of the Christians was that in Jesus, this kingdom actually came. And it didn't look like what the Jews might have expected. They expected a king to ride into battle and violently conquer the world, but that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus became king by dying on the cross and being raised victorious over the powers of sin and death. And then everyone who followed him could be a citizen of the kingdom where God truly does reign over the whole earth. The Lord reigns. And that Old Testament hope really did come true. God's kingdom spread to the point where even people in this room, thousands of years from then, from all different nations and from all different people groups, are citizens of God's kingdom. And they're tasked with continuing to bring God's blessing and presence to the whole world. The Lord reigns. It finally happened. Isn't it wonderful? You can imagine, though, right after Jesus died and was raised again, that a lot of people would have been skeptical that God's kingdom really did come. They were looking for a violent conqueror, and that just didn't happen, did it? So a lot of Jews kept on trying to agitate for violent revolution and kept being angry with the Gentiles and thinking they were the ones holding the kingdom of God back for years and years. But some of the Jews really did believe that God's kingdom had come through Jesus, even if it wasn't what they were expecting at first. And they did this beautiful theology where they thought, hey, if Jesus is king and the Lord really does reign over the whole earth, then that means that Gentiles now are part of this kingdom, just like the Old Testament said they would. And so they preached the good news of Jesus' kingdom to them, and an incredible number of Gentiles converted. And this was happening as far away as Rome, just under the emperor's nose, a little, as little as 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And it was getting so big that there was a decent-sized church that included both Jews and Gentiles in Rome. It was obvious to these Christians that the Lord reigns. Sometime in the 50s AD, a Roman historian tells us, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. Most scholars believe that this was the Roman historian mishearing the name Christ. Kind of funny, isn't it? In other words, the church had spread all the way to Rome within 20 years of Jesus' resurrection, and some Jewish Christians were preaching the gospel to them, and the Emperor was not happy about it. Probably the Jewish Christians had arrived and started converting Gentiles to Christianity which meant that they wouldn't sacrifice to the gods or, or make offerings to the emperor, which was kind of a big deal to them. Of course, the Romans probably thought that this was all about more Jewish troublemakers, so they decided to just expel all the Jews from the city. What that meant for the church was that in Rome, at one time, almost all, there was almost all Jews and had a few Gentile converts, and probably the Jews had most of the leadership positions since they knew the Bible a good bit better and they'd been following God a little bit longer. But then suddenly, all the Jews were expelled, and the church was entirely all these new Gentile converts. At that point, what did the Gentiles do? The church had to go on, right? So for for a couple of years, the church went on with only Gentiles. Somebody had to preach, and there were no Jews around, so Gentiles preached. Somebody had to collect the offerings, And so Gentiles collected the offerings. Somebody had to be the head deacon, so a Gentile was the head deacon. Somebody had to play the piano, or whatever they played, so Gentiles played the piano. You might have worried that the church in Rome wouldn't survive without Jews there to keep the show running, but it turns out it really did survive. God was there and was blessing all these new Christians and keeping them in the faith, even though they probably faced some serious persecution. But then, a couple of years later, Emperor Claudius died and the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. They walked into their old churches and found out, miracle of miracles, the church survived and was even thriving. It's great news, right? God was with them, and the work that the Jews had put in to establish the church in Rome wasn't in vain. I'm sure there was this amazing reunion, and everyone was happy for a while. But do you ever get news that's, almost, that's so good that's almost a little bit too good? In high school, I, whenever we would be given group projects, everybody would try to be in my group uh, because they kind of knew that I would just totally do the whole project myself and they wouldn't have to do a whole lot. <laughs> um, then in college, it was amazing because pretty much everyone in my classes was that same kid in high school who did all the work in the group projects. So when I found a group to do work in, people would actually split the work up pretty evenly. It was awesome. I would look at the work that other people in my group did and think, man, they did a really good job. I don't need to worry about this at all. But then I would think just a little bit and realize, huh, I really don't need to worry about this at all. They did really good work without me. Wait a minute, do they really need me at all? I had gotten so used to doing all the work that I didn't realize I had gotten kind of proud of being the kid who did all the work, and I didn't even realize it. They really didn't need me, huh? I imagine the same kind of thing was going through the heads of the Jewish Christians when they came back to Rome. They were thinking, wow, God has really blessed this church. This is great. It has grown so much while we were gone. They really didn't need us after all. Then they thought, huh, God really blessed this church. It has grown so much while we were gone. They really didn't need us after all. Worse still, now all the leadership positions were filled by Gentiles because of course they were. Who else would have had them? All of the Jews were expelled from the city. So all the Jews might have expected to come back and become the pastors and the preachers and the deacons again. But the Gentiles were handling all those posts perfectly fine without them. With all this in mind, you might notice that all through this book, Paul mentions stuff like the Jews being jealous and how Paul is so often talking about how the gospel is the power of God, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, and how the Jews were weak in their faith in certain ways. It all kind of makes sense. So what Paul is out to show is that this gospel isn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, too. And that isn't just the gospel's really good news for the Jews, but the Gentiles can come, too, just know that they're second-class citizens. And he does that by referencing the forefather of all the Jews, who is Abraham. If he did prove that Abraham's relationship with God wasn't based on the Torah, but based on faith, then that means that everyone's relationship with God is based on faith and not on the Torah. So in other words, the Jews don't have any special advantage. They, they have the Torah, but they don't need the, the Gentiles don't need the Torah. Basically, what he's saying is that Abraham had a real relationship with God hundreds of years before the Torah ever existed. And what that means is their relationship with God isn't based on following the Torah, but based on faith. How could it if Abraham, the father of God's chosen people, didn't know a lick about the Torah? So why did the law come at all? Paul says in, his, in this verse, he received the of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He didn't need the law to become righteous. He was already righteous because he had faith in God. It was a seal of that righteousness or a good gift of God meant to bless Abraham by showing him how to live in a way that would make him more blessed. So what that means in this context is that the Jews aren't any more special than anyone else. They had let Gentiles into their churches like they were supposed to. When they came back from their banishment into Rome, they would have felt like they needed to take all the leadership positions back. Something like, good job keeping the church while we were going, you cute little Gentiles. Now give the reins back to us special Jews that really know what we're doing because we have the Torah. No, Paul says. The Jews aren't special anymore. They aren't first class citizens in God's kingdom, while the Gentiles are second class citizens that need to be ruled over. The good news really is good news, but sometimes it's so good that you have to completely change your mindset. It turns out that God really has made the whole world his kingdom, but that means that the Jews aren't, just aren't special by virtue of being Jews anymore. And so what Paul was calling these people to do was to recognize that God was really working in these Gentiles, and so they should be allowed to keep some of their positions of leadership in the church, even though the Jews were now back. Jesus Christ is king of the whole world. And to make Gentiles second-class citizens denies that, because it makes it seem like it's all just business as usual, with the Jews being the real people of God, and other people might be able to join on the periphery. But no. When Jesus came, he was going to be king of the whole world. And everything good and true and noble would spread to everyone because of the church. As Paul says in chapter 3, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's important for us. When we try to make people second-class citizens in the kingdom, especially for worldly reasons, we are accidentally denying that Jesus really is the promised king that he said he was. And it's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to look at each other and come up with reasons that this person is part of the in-group of the church and this person's kind of on the periphery. Or maybe we think this person doesn't look like us or talk like us so it's gonna be hard to welcome them. But no, the good and perfect reign of God has come to everyone and that means there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female, because the Lord reigns just like he's always said he would. Praise God. So now, Paul says in chapter 15, it's up to us to welcome one another as God and Christ has welcomed you. We can show the love of our church family and the love of God to one another. And that's how everyone around us will know that the Lord reigns. Look around at these assets that we put up in the room from the retreat last weekend. And I really think that the biggest one we have isn't that we have no debt, or that our buildings are paid off, or anything like that, even though those are important. But that we so clearly have a family atmosphere, that we love one another as we love God. And that's despite all kinds of differences between us. We've got liberals and conservatives. We've got different races. We've got rich people and poor people. All other places in the world, those are big differences that keep people apart. And if we really learn to welcome people into this family, they will see that we have a different kind of community here. It's one where people don't shy away from the tough stuff and they don't look down on one another for struggling. Where else can you find that but in a place that's been infused with the kingdom of God that's found in Christ Jesus? What better proof is there that the Lord reigns? In the end, Paul says, there's only one thing that qualifies you to be a part of this church family, which isn't following the Torah, but faith. It's believing in Jesus Christ that he came to save you and free you from slavery to sin and death, and then trusting Him in him with the rest of your life. Now, for a long time, I always had a hard time with these passages, because I'm a person who tends to overthink everything, and I never really was sure whether I really trusted God. Like, what does that mean exactly? I believe in God and I try to act like a Christian, but sometimes I have doubts. Does that mean I don't really have faith? So the, the text says in verse 5, you might want to have it open so you can check back and forth. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is kind of a complicated verse, but because it kind of makes it's kind of made sense to us at first glance, but there's a lot in the cultural background of Rome in the first century that really helps you to understand it we think about the one who works as something that, that is really, really real. Like every, almost everybody in our society works, right? But actually in ancient Rome, a really surprising number of people didn't work at all, or maybe like worked every three days or so. Sorry. Um, yeah, long story short, they, they would find this really rich person and they'd pledge their loyalty to them and then they would give them gifts. So that's how an enormous number of people in Rome actually made their money and fed themselves. In other words, gifts in ancient Rome generally weren't no strains attached. Once the rich person gave the poorer person money, the poorer person was meant to be loyal to the rich guy. And what that loyalty was called was faith. That meant that if he was running for office, you not only voted for him, but you were out in the streets telling everybody else that they should vote for him. If the rich guy was being sued in court, you would boo and hiss and whatever when the prosecutor opened his mouth. Basically, you were bought and paid for, and you were expected to be completely loyal to whoever gives you money. There weren't any kind of laws about this, but everyone kind of knew how it worked. If you were a disloyal client, if you were a disloyal poor person who gets money from them, you couldn't expect any more handouts, and you might not be able to find anyone else who could give you handouts. And then, heaven forbid, you might actually have to work three days in a row. (laughs) And we use the word faith to mean loyalty a lot too. In a lot of cases, faith in the Bible means something closer to being faithful to your spouse or faithful to your country and less to do with intellectual belief. Then, Paul says, your faith or loyalty is counted as righteousness. In other words, it fulfills your end of the bargain that God's covenant has with you so that you can experience the blessings of God's covenant. Long story short, The mark that makes you part of the church is loyalty to Christ. And you're going to fail to have loyalty every once in a while, that's guaranteed. Because we are sinners and we're slowly being made into the people we're supposed to be. But God is incredibly loyal to us even when we're not loyal to him. And his grace covers over a multitude of sins. But just like Abraham, we are still called to give our imperfect loyalty to God. That can still be hard. Just over a year ago, I had my first interview with Craig just downstairs about coming and being the pastor here. And I can tell you that this job has been totally different from any job I've had before. It's not like stooping ice cream or selling vegetables at a farmer's market or tutoring for standardized tests like I used to. I didn't know what it was like to be a pastor, and I really couldn't know until I started. I wasn't particularly confident because how could I be? I had no idea what was going on but my motto the last year or so for a bunch of different things has been fake it till you make it. I'm going to act like what I think a pastor looks like even when I don't feel like a pastor, and that's going to be just as good as feeling like a pastor. Even today, it still feels weird when people call me Pastor Joey. But I'm going to keep acting like a pastor, and eventually I'll feel like one. I think something really similar happens with faith. We may not want to admit it, but there really is a lot of fake it till you make it with faith as well. Your mind so often is full of doubts, and you're not sure if you can really control it. Is God really going to save me, even me? What could that God possibly have to do with me? Should I really trust him? Those thoughts will come into your mind, and you're just not going to be able to control them. But one thing I've learned recently is that you might not be able to perfectly control your mind, but you can control your feet you can just take that next step of faith and obedience and proceed as if you trust God, even if you're not sure that you do. Because if you looked deeply into the mind of anybody, you'd have a hard time finding someone who trusts God without any doubts. That's about as rare as it gets. And the people who do trust God completely, if such a person exists, did it because they decided to act in faith and trust in God, even when they didn't feel certain. Seeing yourself trust God and seeing God come through for you is probably the best way to convince your mind to trust God, as opposed to the way we often think about it, which is where you convince your mind to trust God, and then you convince your feet. And God proves again and again that he would take care of you and save you. You can see that even in the story of Abraham, which Paul mentions as the perfect image of human faith. Abraham believed God that he would get offspring, but he had no idea how it would happen, He really had no idea what he was doing, so he thought, hmm, God said he would give me offspring, and we know Sarah's not going to get pregnant at 100 years old. Maybe God wants me to have kids with my concubine. He didn't have perfect faith, and he wasn't exactly sure what God was doing. But that's what human faith looks like. In the end, doing the stuff that shows you have loyalty and faith, even when you have doubts, and even when you're nervous, and even when you're not sure whether you trust God, might just be a more beautiful thing than trusting when you have no doubts. Being able to overcome all those things to act like you trust God shows moral faith and more loyalty and not less. Just like doing something scary when you're scared makes you more courageous, not less. So let's take a look at ourselves during this time of Lent and consider whether we've represented the kingdom of God in our church like we're supposed to. Have we tried to make second-class citizens of other people and in that way accidentally deny that Jesus is the promised king who bought a new people from every tribe, town, and nation? If so, let's make amends and worship the king who makes us all one. And have we been loyal to King Jesus, recognizing that he bought us with his own blood and we are now his? Have we recognized that he gives us a better kingdom, one that's based on love for each other and encourages us to be the people we were always supposed to be? If not, and none of us really are, let's consider the ways that we can recommit our lives to Jesus, because we can, be expect, we can expect to be blessed by a new life when we do. Let's pray. God, make us loyal in love to you, so we can show the world that there is a different kind of kingdom at work in the church, and so that your name might be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.